musical linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I think that you're going to get a lot of ideas out of today's program because it uh, focuses on some of the things that uh, one can take away from an ayahuasca experience. It's a talk that was given this year in Byron's Bay, Australia, by Rack Razam. And I'm sure that you're going to remember Rack from his 2014 Palenque Norte lecture that I podcast earlier this year. Now, after we listen to Rack, in addition to a few comments about what he has to say, I'll also be letting you know about a couple of movies that I think you're going to be interested in. But now, here is Rack Razam. Thank you, Elima. And um, yeah, I'm really glad to be back here in uh, Byron Bay and Starseed and to be supporting your initiative. It's a really great idea. The Amazon does need all our help, and not just the Amazon, but you know, we all need help, and we all need to help each other, helping yeah. each other. And you know, basically, these uh, conventions and gatherings and discussions such a great uh, nodal point for us to cluster and to come together and to meet each other and to recognize each other um, and to do this work. And this work is so important, just not just on an individual level, but also on a macro level in what we do once we have been engaging with the plant medicines, we have been doing our individual healing, and collectively that means that we can come together as healed individuals which can then make you know responsible decisions of how we want to live our lives and how we want to form societies and tribes and groups to go forward and to bring in this sort of new paradigm or this energy that's coming in to be sustainable to be um, joyous and to be you know responsible citizens of this galactic ecology that we live in um, Ali Ma invited me to come here and talk, and I don't have a prepared talk, so I'm going to do what I do best and just stream, stream what comes to me from divine consciousness. Uh, I have just returned from the Amazon jungle. Uh, as Ali Ma mentioned, I have done a documentary called Ira Awakenings, which started off as a book called Ira Awakenings, which started off as a 3,000 word article for a freelance magazine, which shall not be mentioned. Um, in 2006, so I've been on this path now for almost, you know, over nine years, be nine years in June, and um, what is the path, you know, uh, it's, you could say the shaman's path, you could say the spiritual path, specifically working with the plant medicines, I think it's a path of awakening, uh, it really is something that um, tribal people all over the world have retained the knowledge of, Terence McKenna has this beautiful little phrase, I mean Terence, right, Terence, the great uh, Moses of modern psychedelic culture, the one who has brought back a lot of information and sound bites and memes for us to digest and to ruminate on and to make our own and to figure out not just what they meant but how to implement them. One of his many uh, beautiful phrases was, you know, plan, plant, planet. And embedded in that is this idea that the planet as an organism, is working through the plants to implement its plan. And there is a plan. And so, you know, indigenous cultures all over the world uh, have retained, to a large degree, their connection with the planet. You know, they have themselves and their lives on the earth and they're engaging with the, the planet and the earth and the biorhythms and the seasons and the plants. And they understand energy and they understand cycles of time and rhythms it's almost like permaculture, um, but it, it's this sense of almost as if uh, societies themselves, which engage in this one-on-one -on -one with the planet, it's almost planet culture, you know, planet permaculture. And so uh, I first went, went down to Peru in 2006, and I was chasing this story on what was this mythic archetype of the shaman. Now, in classical anthropology, they'll tell you things like, there is no such thing as shaman, according to most of the indigenous cultures in the world. It came from, you know, this classic text, Shamanism, by Mercé Eliad in the 1960s, when he uh, was looking at the Siberian shaman, the Samans, and their work with the, uh, the Amanita muscaria mushrooms. 
And they've applied that in a Western sense, almost like a brand name to apply to medicine people across the world. But medicine people all across the world have their own names for what they do, but essentially they are medicine people. They work with their different plants, not all of them psychoactive, the vast majority are not psychoactive, but they work with what the, the earth gives them, the bounty of the earth, the living organism of the earth, which gives us everything we need if we know how to give and take responsibly and not just take, 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 as Western culture has, in its egocentric drive towards uh, civilization, has been doing over the march of his story, of history. Uh, so this idea of connection to the planet and this idea that there's a plan, there is a right relationship that we can have with the planet in which we are fed. We are fed on a physical level, our bodies, but we can also be fed spiritually by almost like the chi or the ambient energy of the planet herself if we're in right relationship. Many of these plants that the medicine people use all across the world uh, are for healing and some of them, the very select ones, are entheogenic which is uh, from the Greek uh, for um, the divine within, something in the plant which invokes this sense of spiritual um, spiritual awareness or spiritual presence of the divine. Now, all, all this language you know, is Western, but this is a real experiential, tangible thing. When you engage with the plant medicines of all different varieties whether that's the ayahuasca, the San Pedro cactus, the salvia, the acacias, uh, the morning glory seeds, cannabis, even tobacco, all of these things and more have been considered sacred plants by indigenous cultures across the world. And they're to be used in, in a right way. There's a right relationship to establish with them. So the medicine people, the shamans, have uh, retained this knowledge and I was going down to Peru in search of what the... South American version, the ayahuasca movement and what the shaman meant in the 21st century. And so nine years later, I have a very different uh, perception of what that is. It's, it's the same. You know, in a nutshell, many of you probably are aware there's been this rise in what I call, you know, resurgence in global shamanism, which is essentially a Western pursuit because the indigenous peoples never lost this. They've had an unbroken thread for the cultures which weren't uh, conquered or extinguished and they've managed to retain this ability and this knowledge of how to heal with the plants and to use um, not just medicinally for healing physically, but how to connect spiritually to the, um, the dimensions that these substances can open up. Uh, and that's one of the other roles of the shaman. It's not just healer. It can be walker between the worlds, traveler between the worlds, psychopomp, someone who goes and retrieves his soul from the other worlds, or gains knowledge uh, on behalf, to work on behalf of the patient. But this idea of healing is really important in the traditional role of healer. And uh, in 2006, when I was documenting this in the book, Eye Awakenings, you know, even back then, there was this groundswell of interest from Westerners across the world who were coming in search of ayahuasca and the healing it could provide. And not all of them were physically sick. In fact, probably the vast majority... You know, there's been a lot of documentation with the science of ayahuasca and what it's doing, and also with um, people going down to work on ailments, physical ailments, all the way up to things like cancer and AIDS or other types of conditions they may have. Uh, it's not just the ayahuasca, it's basically reconnecting to the flow of life. And by being in the jungles and being on dieta, by retreating from the world and a lot of the toxins and poisons that the Western culture um, you know, imbues in us, away from the electromagnetic frequencies, away from the sugars and the salts and the alcohol and, um, you know, just all those things which are really affecting not just our physical bodies but also our vibrational bodies. In the uh, cosmovision or the, the world paradigm of the Peruvians, they believe that we have a physical body, we have an emotional body, we have an energy body. There's all these layers uh, to our true being. And that sickness begins at these core realms, at these inner realms. And that, you know, as we go through life, we have experiences, we have joys, but we also have hurts and wounds and instances where we vibrationally store, like we're either um, open or we're contracting, you know. And in that contraction time, uh, we store a lot of this negativity. And some of those things which are stored can fester and wound and grow over time and develop a sickness. 
So, you know, a lot of the curanderos, which is what the indigenous uh, shamans of the, the Amazon region call themselves, it's from the Spanish to cure or to heal, um, they do a lot of their work with ayahuasca and a multitude of other medicinal plants to heal their patients. In Peru, in you know the, the city I've been most to, the area I've been to most in uh, in Peru is in Quitos. There's a few little hotbeds of shamanic activity, and it's interesting because uh, one of the previous talks was mentioning the uh, the Mama Lacta family in Ecuador, and for whatever reasons, you know, cultural vectors that have happened, Peru seems to have gotten the brunt of ayahuasca tourism over the last 20 years or so. It's one of the first countries to open up uh, lodges specifically designed to cater to Westerners to go down and experience ayahuasca. And it has snowballed in the last 20 plus years to an industry, you know, and I'm now involved in this industry and there's a lot of light and a lot of dark in this industry as a lot of money is accruing and a lot of people are going down and to essentially very poor communities. Um, but uh, this idea of people getting healed, a lot of people are going for physical healing, but the vast majority of people who I've met and who I've documented and interviewed and reported on uh, are going for something related but slightly different. There's this you know, very tangible sense in Western culture that we are disenchanted. We have fallen out of right relationship with the planet and with ourselves. And this sense of um, aloneness or this sense of disconnection has resulted in a spiritual sickness. I mean, to the degree that most of Western material uh, culture doesn't even agree on the word spirit. You know, it all has to be reduced to a mechanistic view of reality. And they might agree that there's a bioelectric field in our bodies, uh, but they still want to, they still not only don't agree, but they still don't really know where consciousness comes from. And, you know, they, they won't uh, entertain this idea that consciousness can extend beyond the body, which is one of the central tenets of shamanism, that you can extend beyond the body and you can experience the, you know, the cosmic ecology of what you live in, that the web of life continues beyond the physical plane into the astral realms and into the inner space dimensions uh, all the way up and in. And uh, there's this vast territory of the terra incognita, the invisible landscape, that the indigenous peoples and the shamans across the world have been mapping and also holding space for to keep the awareness and the flow of energy which continues from the physical realm all the way up into the, the invisible landscapes. So this sense of spiritual disconnection has affected all of the West, you know. It's, it's come through all of our recorded history and the vast majority of Westerners I've uh, encountered have been going down to Peru in search of ayahuasca, not for a physical healing, but for this reconnection, this sense of connection to what, you must ask. Well, in my experience with ayahuasca, there's multiple levels to this. Ayahuasca is a purgative. It can heal you on a physical level or help facilitate your own healing on a physical level. One of the things I think that uh, gets overlooked in the, 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 the momentum and the global fad that ayahuasca has become is that it's not a one-pill one or one-shot one sort of um, cure for everything. It, it works to engage with you and to reveal your own true nature and you then work on your own healing. Ayahuasca does have you know, physical effects where it can purge out some physical things from your body. A lot of the indigenous cultures still use it because in the Amazon basin they're getting infections from the water or infections from mosquitoes and other creatures that exist. And so it can be purging out, helping you release all those physical toxins and infections you might have. Um, the one good scientific study that's been done on ayahuasca back in the 1990s, the Hawaska Project, which was done by Charles Grob and Dennis McKenna and others, was looking at church members of one of the ayahuasca churches, the Ineo, the Vegetal, um, and they uh, looked at the ways that it was helping cleanse not just the physical body, but uh, on a more you know, mental or um, neuronal level, it was helping almost defrag the, the neuronal structure and relink up the synaptic pathways. It seems essentially that as a medicine, ayahuasca helps cleanse and reset uh, the mind and the body back to optimal conditions. Um, 
That's one layer of healing. Another layer that's happening, there's been recent studies, legal studies across the world by different organizations and NGOs, um, where they've been looking at things like LSD, psilocybin mushrooms, and ayahuasca on what it's doing in a clinical set and setting. And they've discovered that these substances, the psychoactives, seem to turn off these regional clusters of the brain called the default mode network. And it's uh, uh, interlocking regions of the brain which collectively give us this sense of ego and identity and make up this sense of the I that we think we are, but we're not. We're not just that thing. Um, but when those things are turned off, the default mode network, essentially uh, the mind at large is open to the full gamut of consciousness, the full spectrum of consciousness. And so part of the healing that can come when these things are turned off with ayahuasca especially is that a lot of unconscious material floats to the surface. And that can be in a visionary state, in a dreamlike state where the, uh, the dimethyltryptamine in the ayahuasca brew can help potentiate uh, your own dimethyltryptamine in the brain and you can have a very visionary experience. A lot of those visions are thought to be cathartic. They're thought to be related to uh, processing almost like day residues in the way that the brain um, will visualise in dreams and things like that. A lot of the other visionary material in the ayahuasca experience uh, seems to be very cosmic and seems to be very um, outside the individual experience. If we look at other mind maps like Jung, who um, had this idea that you have the day residues as level one in your dreaming state, then you might have a collective unconscious where you're, you're in this reservoir or pool of shared consciousness. So you may be meeting someone else in your dream, um, or you may be drawing upon cultural archetypes or cultural sort of nodal points that's all merging together on the second level. And then on a deeper sort of level, there's maybe the species unconscious or the interspecies unconscious or the canvas of the astral where all those top levels are embedded uh, upon. And so, you know, ayahuasca and, and dimethyltryptamine can take you to many, many different realms. This type of journey and the, this journeying into the realms is more specifically the role of the shaman as psychopomp or the traveler between the worlds. And interestingly enough, this seems to be where a lot of the Western interest lies. Um, a lot of curanderos have been sort of um, confused by this sense that, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Westerners are going down to the Amazon basin to take ayahuasca, not in search of physical healing, but to connect to this idea that there's something more. There's something more than what Western culture and materialism has taught them. And that something more is this connection to spirit. And what is spirit? And what is great spirit, as some indigenous cultures have called it in North America? Essentially, I believe it's the planetary spirit itself. You know, it's what James Lovelock uh, termed Gaia, the, the Greek goddess of the earth. Um, it's this idea that in indigenous culture in South America, they call it Pachamama. And every you know, indigenous culture will, will have different language for this. They have all across the world languages of relationship where they will call, you know, the earth and the earth spirits and the sun and the moon and the stars and the water, they will have names for it. And those names are sort of um, familial. They're like, they're interlocking like family names. And Pachamama is, uh, is one of the names for the earth itself. So this brings up this whole, whole idea of the web of life. So, you know, many times in Ayahuasca, what has happened to me uh, and to people I've talked to is this feeling that, I transcend or we transcend our individual shells and we start to connect to the greater spiritual ecology, the web of life that is all around. And when you're in the jungle, you're in a maloka, you're in an ayahuasca ceremony in the dark in Shipibo type style and the curandero is singing the ikaros and driving the energy of the ceremony and steering your consciousness in that ceremony, uh, you can just explode into this multi-dimensional reality that becomes more real than real, more as real as this. But a lot of these states of mind, you have to let go of the intellect because it's not just about that. I mean, the, the creator, the great spirit, gave us this vehicle and in this vehicle with our consciousness, we have more than just what the West has been rewarding. There's more than just the intellect and the ego. When the ego is gone and the default mode network is off, and the full spectrum of consciousness arises and merges back into the web of life and the full field of being, 
that's when the juicy stuff really starts happening, right? And so uh, this web of life we are part of. And okay, I'll come back to to my some of my recent experiences in the jungle. Before about a month ago or so, there was this beautiful um, Mexican doctor and shamanic practitioner Octavio Reti who came to Byron Bay and uh, blew a circuit in our shamanic culture here uh, with the 5-MeO-DMT medicine of the Sonoran Desert Toad, who's the, the bufotenine in the toad. It's a different medicine. It comes from you know the, this toad that occurs in North America and into Mesoamerica. Um, and as I mentioned at the start, there's many, many different psychoactives, many different entheogens, and the planet herself secretes them. You know, Terence McKenna had this idea that the psychoactive plants are actually like, uh, he called them exopheromones, this idea that nature communicates in a chemical language between the species. And that's how nature switches on and switches off different species to act as messengers to fulfill the larger plan that she is initiating and carrying through all the creatures. Because we are all her, you know? It's like, it's like we're like fingers, individual units that start to recognize we're connected to a hand. And then all of a sudden you realize the hand's connected to the elbow. And then you realize, my God, there's this giant, larger being that we are part of. And with shamanic medicines like ayahuasca and the other entheogens, they can wipe clean the veil and they can reveal this connection. And so uh, after I had done this frog medicine, this toad medicine with Octavia already about a month ago, uh, I went down to the Amazon and I had forgotten, I kept thinking it was an extremely, extremely profound and powerful experience. It was very much beyond um, most ayahuasca journeys. But the reason I mention it is because I've just come back. I've, after nine years of working in ayahuasca culture globally, writing the book, which was two books and became the film, I'm now facilitating ayahuasca retreats in Peru every three months or so with a very, very um, beautiful, trusted curandero, Percy Garcia. And uh, I went into um, ceremony with Percy Garcia like three weeks ago or something with a, a group of, of, of Westerners I was leading. And they're all, most of them were doing ayahuasca for the first time. And, you know, we do all the introductory speeches, we do the duty of care, we get everyone prepped. And, you know, a lot of it is this fear of the unknown of like, well, what's going to happen? And, you know, a lot of people have read the books or seen films and they've intellectually known. But as I said before, it's more than just the intellect. We have um, an imagination, which in old magical terms, the imagination is more than just daydreaming or thinking things up. It's how the will carves out the future, how you carve out the possibilities of all the different probability fields of where things could go. And if you hold what you want to manifest with your imagination, then you can anchor it and you can you can make things happen. You can make reality bend to your will because it's interactive and it listens. You mightn't always get it, but if you know the protocols and take the right steps, you're on the right road to, uh, to manifest. So you have the intellect, the imagination, and you have the intuition. And for me, I believe this is one of the core, most crucial tools in your shamanic toolkit, is that when you're in these spaces, it's not just about the visionary state and it's not just about the healing. It's really about what the freak is happening. And the only way to really know what is happening in this knowing sense is to feel into it. And you have to use your intuition. It's like um, your intuition is its empathic, and in these realms, you're basically telepathic. You're like skinned, you know, and you're raw in the astral plane. And you probably may encounter entities that live on that astral plane. In Western um, psychological senses, they will say these are artifacts of your subconscious and representations of whatever's going on in you. To some degree, they may be. This is the challenge of our generation to sort the fact from the fiction, to not just take on board the indigenous people's dogma, but to honour their wisdom, to realise that they have generations, if not thousands of years of wisdom, handed down from tribe to tribe and curandero to curandero. And to a large degree, they know what's going on. The issues are what's going on for them is coloured through their perception, their world paradigm, their view. And we have a fresh perspective that can be very valuable to look at it and not dismiss it, 
but to also try to figure out what's happening with us. And it's not just the intellect, it's the intuition. So going into these realms, the intuition is your best friend because there's some telepathic type of exchange which is how you communicate in this realm, in that space. And there's a knowing, and you might encounter aspects of yourself, you might work through all your emotional traumas, you might cascade through all your loved ones and say hi and work through all your relationships. These are sort of the processing that happens as part of the cleansing of the body to prepare for going higher and higher into the realms. And as you go higher, you may meet entities. And it's like there's a lot of tools which have been developing as this sort of um, blend between Western psychology and transpersonal psychology and shamanic sort of protection and shamanic warriorship where you can engage with entities and sort of pulse at them and beam and say, are you good, are you bad? And you're going on feeling, you're going on this gut reaction of as you navigate through the realms. A lot of the visionary states may or may not be processed stuff coming up. They may be consensual um, geographies and uh, nodal points of connection that exist independent from us. A lot of the curanderas and a lot of the visionary art you may have seen uh, representations of the ayahuasca experience by artists like Pablo Amaringo, Andy Debonati, or Mauro Rogato, some of the, the favourites, um, uh, anchor this visionary realm. And you might see these golden cities or you know jungle representations. A lot of them are this sort of blending mishmash of nature where you'll see parrots and waters and dolphins in sort of this... Um, it, it's it's almost like this kaleidoscope mashup of player forms. It's the web of life. What they're showing in these pictures is essentially the web of life. And then sometimes they go deeper and you'll see this transcendent heavenly celestial realms coming out of the visions. The interesting thing for me lately on my personal journey is that it goes deeper and it goes deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And I feel what is happening uh, is that once... We have healed our individual bodies to whatever degree we can, and we stick to the diet. The diet is so crucial to retaining the sensitivity for these plant medicines, and especially ayahuasca. There's a lot of confusion around the dieta, and around if you're going in as a random sort of seeker for one ceremony, you know, you've got to be careful of what you're taking into your body, that you're not going to have contraindications from certain foods, which may cause complications, the red wine, the cheeses, you know, the fermented foods, things like that. Uh, then there's a deeper level if you're going in regularly as a shamanic sort of seeker or learner or apprentice, where you've got to just maintain your energy levels and your, your cleansed ability. The shamans themselves, they do dietas for months or years at a time, often the jungle in isolation. So the, the, the receptivity they have of their energetic bodies their bodies are like an antenna to receive stellar energy and inter, inter, interspace energy and to hear the plants. Stephen Bayer has this famous book now called Singing to the Plants. Um, and it's like this idea that, you know, the, the ikaros they receive and the power they receive to do shamanic work comes from their ability to maintain dieta and to keep their energy levels clean and vibrationally pure. So then you can hold more of the energy coming in. So if you're healed on that first level, then you can go to level two. And this is what I find interesting because there's a generation now, and we're not shamans. My little sci-fi shorthand for this is shamanauts. And that comes from the Greek to be a traveler. You know, the astronaut, the cosmonaut, the shamanaut. You know, we're going into inner space. And this, I believe, is a consensual, valid realm that exists where the web of life continues on inner dimensional um, plateaus. And we can travel there and we can bring back information or maps of hyperspace. So a lot of my current work is involved with a project called Terra Incognita, which hopefully you'll hear about in the coming months and years, which is involved in trying to develop platforms and pathways to bring back this information about hyperspace and to ground and anchor it in a meaningful way to share these maps and to have um, a consensus that, yes, this, this dimensionality exists, and it's not just, it's something the intellect can grasp, it's something the intuition can grasp, and it's something we can hold true and work with in our culture as our culture mutates and becomes not old world and new world and, uh, you know, north and south, east and west, but becomes a unified planetary culture, which is sustainable and is in right relationship with the earth and with ourselves. So I see developing around me this generation of shamanauts, not trained shamans, not yet, 
you know, to be a proper shaman, 20, 30 years, to be a banco shaman, 40, 50 years, to really know the, um, the song of the plants and the relationships we can build with the, the plant world. Now, of course, at this time as well, it's getting pretty urgent out there. There's this sense of planetary emergency, and in every emergency is the opportunity for emergence. And I believe the plan is coming to fruition, right? And this is what is meant to be happening. You know, this is the deadline. This is the kick up the ass to get out of bed and to start to actually do the work. And we're all feeling that the water's boiling and the frog's about to jump out of the pot of water because, you know, these are the times and we are the ones and there is work to be done. So what is this work? This is the work of the soul. This is the work of remembrance. This of remembrance of who and what we really are, how we connect to the web of life, how we anchor this energy, and how we then bring in this right relationship of living on the earth and let the plan come through us. Because we are part of this. We are the nerve endings of the divine in matter. We are, you know, the, the, the crest of the wave. But all the other species and all of history has built this wave that we are inhabiting the crest of. So it's a great joy, but it's also a very great responsibility. So as more and more Westerners engage with ayahuasca and many other plant medicines, we are getting cleansed and we are getting anchored into the remembrance of the spiritual ecology, of what this dimension is. So I feel it's time to go to the next level, you know, to train ourselves, to support ourselves and to bring back the information and to weave, to reweave this relationship with the earth and with the spiritual dimensions. And this is the essence of what religion is. And so, of course, you know, religion has got a bad rap because just look at history. Forget history, it's over, right? His story is over. This is the new beginning. But the original Latin for religion is to reweave, to reunite to what? to the planet, to great spirit, to the thing which we are born from and are going back to and are part of in this great plan. So this generation of shamanauts is engaging in this remembrance of working with ayahuasca on going deeper themselves, going vertical with their experiences and as on the horizontal axis, ayahuasca is spreading all across the world. Ayahuasca seems to be the vanguard uh, plant entheogen, it has these built-in safeguards that you purge, it can't really be used recreationally, there is a lineage attached to it, which is what the 60s generation was missing out on, they wanted the elders, they wanted the, the peers to say, you're on the right path, or, you know, to, to, to tell them you're fucking up, you know, you're going overboard with the acid, whatever. We now have this lineage of curanderas, of shamans, of healers across the world in many different cultures, not just in ayahuasca culture. And remember, these are not gurus. These are men and women who work with the plant medicines for the benefit, usually, of their communities for healing. The Western approach is a bit different. As I said, I would say, let's say 10% of people have physical healings. The sickness that is being healed with Westerners is this disconnection of spirit, of this remembrance of what we're embedded in and connected to and what we represent. And so as we come on board, and as more of us link together into these communities, ayahuasca and the shamanic modality is spreading all across the planet, here in Byron Bay, all in the west coast of America, all over the Western world. There are now neo-shamans of the global village. There's more and more people. In the old days, if you took this rough analogy of one shaman in a village of 100 people, on a 1 to 100 ratio, we had 7 billion people on climbing. And on that ratio, if my math is good, and it's sometimes not, we need something like 70 million healers or potential shamanic practitioners. We need, you know, and that's just, just so we have a node in every network. And all those networks overlap in the global village. We need to have that grounding and anchoring to make sure everyone's in sustainability and in connection with the spirit, the great spirit, which emanates everywhere, omnidirectionally, from the planet, from the sun, from every core of our being. We just have to tap into it. So this generation of shamanos is going deeper. And in my recent ayahuasca experiences on retreat in, in Peru, man, it just goes so freaking deep. 
The frog medicine seemed to activate me to these extremely high levels, almost like an electric fence, right? That level of intensity, of vibrational intensity. And as the ayahuasca came on, boom, it just went past the visionary round, almost to the white light, to the void, and it went so deep, till basically I could feel the unified field of all existence, almost like cloud computing, as this distributed mesh network of soul. And it is intelligent, and it is loving, and it is intense, because as it tries, or as it ingresses into the dimensionality of our individual bodies, we have to be strong, and we have to be clean, and we have to be the perfect vessel to hold this divine energy. This is what I feel it was asking of me, and so this is what I'm sharing with you. What I see the vision for this generation of shamanauts to be is to be the best vessels we can be for this divine energy. Because it's not just us, and it's not just the planet which is growing and evolving and becoming the best it can be. I'm going to use the God word. The God or the divine force or the unified field of being itself, it is perfecting itself. It is growing and it is growing through relationship with us. And so all of us are in synergy. We are in hopefully more and more correct relationship with that. And when we do that, it's like a circuit board. And the circuit board doesn't have any burnt out circuits. It doesn't have any broken edges. It's all connected up into this um, perfect symmetrical circuit which can hold the energy emanating and coming through. And so I have an inkling from my intuition where that could go, um, but it's up to us. This is the generational challenge of us to just continue what we're doing with awareness, with grace, with dignity, and to help and nurture each other as communities across the globe and recognize this is a global endeavor. This is not just here in Australia or in America or in Britain or in Peru or in Africa. This is basically the reunification of the human species with the planet in right relationship with the divine source itself. And I don't think I can say anything else after that. Thank you. So the question was, what is the relationship between the toad medicine, the bufo, our various frog uh, toad, and the five meo DMT in the frog and ayahuasca? Thank you. So that was what I wanted to get to as well. Ayahuasca usage has been, you know, um, coming back into the Western modality for 20, 30 years, you know, and it's been building and building and building. It feels to me like this has been part of the first steps of the relearning, you know, and as I was saying before, ayahuasca has these built-in protections and modalities where it's the perfect entheogen to go out into the global village and to uh, rekindle this awareness. And as it spreads, people are getting healed and they're getting illuminated and they're opening up. And ayahuasca has done such great work and I continue to work with ayahuasca and I love ayahuasca and it feels as if Perhaps the different entheogens are part of a larger pattern and a cascade. The human brain has many different varieties of dimethyltryptamine. There's the NNDMT, the 5-MeO-DMT, there's pinaline. Um, and if you're in one of these tribal darkness rituals for nine days and nights, the brain itself will start to secrete your endogenous DMT and you'll go into a visionary state. When it does that, though, it secretes the DMT in different layers. And interestingly enough, so what's been described to me is that, say, all the entheogens that exist are like um, baubles or decorations on a Christmas tree. Say it's the tree of life, right? And all the different entheogens are on the different branches. And then at the top is the star or the light. And that light is the 5-MeO-DMT. It seems to be experientially and subjectively and perhaps even scientifically the most powerful entheogenic catalyst that we know of. It's the pure white light. It's the thing which you cannot go any further into without crossing over. And 
the plant-based form of that, in the, the cascade, in the darkness ritual, it's actually the second one that comes out, and it dearms the body. As it goes through the body, you start to release all the tensions and all the stresses, and it's not necessarily just the white light. So what seems to me is happening, this idea that the 5-MeO is at the top of the tree, is that there's initiations and there's protocols and there's permissions on a spiritual level that we're meant to go through first before we go to these larger levels. And, you know, it's not to say that perhaps psilocybin mushrooms are better or worse or less than ayahuasca, but all of these things are serving similar purposes in sifting and gradiating, and it's almost like the washing machine, you're on the permanent press or something, and they're getting rid of all the gunk and cleansing, and then when you're clean, you're ready for the next levels. And so some of these deeper levels lead up to the, the DMT, like the, if you have NNDMT, um, this well, could be smoke DMT, you can go into very, very deep visionary experiences, which sometimes you get to an ayahuasca, but not all the time. Ayahuasca is predominantly more healing. Westerners are drawn to this idea of visions. They're drawn to this tangibility and this um, this authenticity that if you're seeing it, it must be real, even if it's confusing and it's this weird vision, but something's happening. So the DMT can take us to many of these realms within the terra incognita, uh, and you know you can go to there. But then the 5-MeO DMT is said scientifically to be about 10 times more powerful and potent than NNDMT. So if you use an analogy like the Tibetans with the Bardo states in the Tibetan, Tibetan Book of the Dead, it's almost like there's these, another analogy the Sufis say, there's 50,000 layers of illusion between you and God, but none between God and you. And so these 50,000 layers are like curtains or they're, they're permissions and protocols, they're layers which are there for our protection because as you get closer and closer and closer to the raw naked face of God, it burns, man. It's too dense. It's too much. So the 5-MeO-DMT, and especially from the frog, and I think it's very important, there's a distinction and a difference between the synthesized 5-MeO-DMT, which can take you to the white light tunnel, the classic mystical experience where the vibrational field opens you up and the drop rejoins the ocean and you remember that you are it and it is all there is and it's the source. The frog medicine has extra alkaloids or trace elements and this connection to the frog. People have said to me, perhaps with the, the natural entheogens with the plants and, and, the, and the toad, sorry, um, that um, perhaps that spirit is also accompanying us or adding an extra layer to the journey. There's something slightly more, maybe not comforting, but there's an extra energy there. So the 5-MeO is pure white light. In my experience recently with uh, Dr. Reddick, it was um, pineal gland pop, unconditional love was washing down my insides, became a waterfall until I was drinking it and underwater and drowning in pure vibrational density, heart of the star, the raw naked face of God inside me. And that feeling was pure unconditional love, like when you get from a baby or a small child. And we mainly know this feeling of love from connection with another, or maybe if we're lucky from ourselves, but this unconditional love is a vibrational frequency which permeates everywhere, every when, everything. It is the source, the density of the source. So when I went into the ayahuasca space after being activated by the five a week earlier, I went back to this space, or very close to it, and the density of vibration was too freaking much. And so what I think is happening on a larger cultural and evolutionary level is that the entheogens and ayahuasca have been preparing us to hold and receive the light. And the light at the top of the tree of life is the destination and it is the, the culmination of Gaia's plan to bring in heaven on earth. And we are the bridges between heaven on earth. We are the receptacles of hold space between the worlds. And so, you know, if we could look at the shamanic movement in the West and globally now as um, as this, it's like baking a cake, you know, there's these layers. And so all the antigens are baking the cake and making it all ripe and juicy, and the 5-MeO is the icing on the cake. And collectively then, you know, it's the icing and the candles, boom, and the flame and the cat and going on. And... 
You know, Philip K. Dick has this term, he wrote a book called The Divine Invasion, you know, and he was really switched on because the source is coming through multiple modalities, not just entities and not just us. It's coming through the unified field and physics and it's coming through the sun and it's coming through astrophysics and the entheogens and, you know, your own practices because everything that exists is an anchor point for the divine energy to come through. And we're now in a different cycle in the our orbit, you know, um, of the, the earth around the sun and the sun around the solar system, the solar system around the galaxy. We're now in a different um, phase. We're in a new world age. The whole Mayan idea of the, not just 2012, but the fact that the world ages have shifted. We're receiving what I call five-bar galactic godhead signal. And all of history has been like one-bar signal. And then we've gone back to ego and we've forgotten. But as more signal comes in, more of this energy comes in, more and more people are waking up all over the world, spontaneously, without anything. Because we're being fed. The signal is rising. And so if we are being sculpted by divine energies and the plants have been helping us remember, what it is to remember is where we're headed. And it's the light, the, the intelligent, sentient, and oh my fucking God, such loving light. It is pure love. And it sounds like a word, I can say the word love, but imagine diving into an ocean of love and feeling it all around, not just on the outside, but on the inside. And to know at the core of your being, not that just you are loved, you are love. Ah, right? And to know it radiating inside out. And then this is the lesson of the light that the toad has shown me. And that I feel it's very intense. It's very, very intense. So don't just rush out and, and want to do toad medicine. It is a permission and a protocol and a gift for when you are ready to hold it because it can fry the circuit. And as more and more people are ready, it will manifest in your life and more and more people will hold that light and more and more people will share that light and then this divine invasion, that's not an invasion, it's a remembrance, will manifest. And as certain people have related to me who have been initiated by Australian indigenous mobs, the Aboriginals say the dream time is returning. We are coming full circle back to this, this phase in, in the cycle. And what would that mean? Well, the ayahuasca and the plant medicines and the antigens are giving us an inkling. They're giving us a little taster. It's coming on and we're going back to where we are now. So imagine these are the training wheels to get ready for the real thing, for the permanent you know, anchoring point of the divine energy on earth where you are connected with like angel mind, with this bandwidth of frequency that is, I'm here, I'm talking, I'm walking, I'm drinking, and I can feel that frequency. I am connected to pure love and to the divine God, and it is both at once. And I can shift and feel that full love and be in interconnection, the holographic weave. You know, I can feel the connection to all things at all times in that unity consciousness as the unity, the field of unified being is expressed in us and connects to everything. That's what I think the Toad and the 5-MEO and the Great Spirit and the plan is doing as it ices the cake of us. And I'm going to leave it there. Thank you. I'm right there. <laughs> On that note, though, if you want to come to uh, experience one of my Ayahuasca Awakenings retreats, it's iaya-awakenings.com forward slash retreats or look me up at rakrazan.com. And I am so blessed and so thankful for this vehicle and this life and the experience to meet all of you and to go on retreats and to facilitate and help in everyone's awakening because the teachers and the students learn from each other and I love this work. So please join me. Thank you. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Now, my guess is that not all that many of our fellow saloners can deeply, deeply relate to what Rack was trying to say just now about the fact that the core of our beings consists of pure, unconditional love. While that statement has been made many times by many people, my hunch is that not all that many of us have actually felt, experientially felt, what that means. Hopefully, uh, you're one of them. I don't know how many psychedelic voyages that I've taken in my life uh, using a wide variety of substances, 
But there have been a lot of them. And one of them, only a single one, brought me to an experience of being an entity consisting only of love. But trust me, unless you have ever been there yourself, those are only words. I've never spoken about this before because I realize how ineffable such an experience is, and so I applaud Rock for at least pushing the envelope a little bit farther so as to let people know that, well, there is something out there that, if you haven't touched it yet yourself, nonetheless, you can rest assured that it's there. Just uh, just keep searching. Safely and carefully searching, please. And as for Rack's proposition that nature may be communicating with us humans through specific chemicals in her plants, well, I doubt that if uh, there's a single person who has had a major psychedelic experience without coming back ecologically more aware, or green as some would say. It's universal, and that should be of some importance in our continuing discussions about legalizing the use of these plants. Isn't it interesting that we humans have declared some plants that freely grow on this planet to be illegal? Now, if that isn't presumptuous, I don't know what is. Now, if you're interested in learning more about plant medicines, one of the places that can be found is at a crowdsourced social enterprise in Eugene, Oregon that I've just learned of. This is a really interesting concept, and I'll put a link to them in today's program notes, which uh, you know you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. And I want to point out that this is a totally grassroots project. Here's a little bit of what they say on their websites. What services do we provide? A comprehensive lending library? An information center and community hub? Harm reduction services? Healthy and rational-based drug education for all populations? Workshops, classes, and a referral service for addiction treatment? Their website goes on. Our project had its roots in the attempt of Eugene community members to donate their books. Current libraries in operation in the area were willing to accept our books, but declined to keep the collection intact. In other words, they would take our books and scatter the collection far and wide between different institutions. We envision not only keeping the book collection intact, but expertly curating the collection in addition to tripling or quadrupling the library collection and registering as a state library association and non-profit organization. That's uh, the end of what they say on their website. Well, actually, they say a lot more, but uh, you can get the link to that in our uh, program notes. But I'm also very pleased to let you know that the founder and director of this center is James Joseph, who's been a fellow saloner for our full 10 years now. Now, another of our fellow saloners is Alan Lamberg, a screenwriter with a real gift, in my opinion. And like James Joseph, Alan has also decided to stand up and be counted. Recently, his latest movie was released, and it's titled Casualties of the State. And you can find it online at, all one word, casualtiesofthestate.com. And since my uh, fantasy uh, action-adventure video viewing runs along the lines of, uh, well, programs like Covert Affairs and Strike Back, well, Alan's writing really resonated with me. He tells me that he wrote this movie because he wanted to subtly get people thinking about the problem of war profiteering. And if you don't think that's a problem, then, well, you haven't been paying attention for the past 50 years or so. It's really a well-written film and has enough twists and turns that, well, it kept me guessing until the very end as to how it was going to turn out. So uh, check it out if you get a chance. And uh, if you uh, move around in the Hollywood crowd, you may want to check it out as a possible pilot for a series. I can tell you that I, for one, am really interested to find out where the main character goes from here. <laughs> and again, uh, you'll find links to Alan's work in today's program notes. Finally, there is one more movie that I want to tell you about. A week ago, I heard about this film and decided to give it a plug, but then I had an opportunity to watch it, and I'm here to tell you that this is most definitely a movie that you want to see. It, uh, well, it deserves much more than a simple plug. It's by filmmaker Gay Dillingham and is titled Dying to Know, Ram Dass and Timothy Leary. And uh, you'll find several links about it in today's program notes, uh, including a link to its trailer. But trust me, the trailer is barely the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. You see, while there is a significant amount of historical material in the film, ultimately what it is about is something that each and every one of us has in common. 
we're all going to die one day. Like it or not, that is a fact. And as the movie points out, it is also a topic that is more or less taboo in polite company. Now, what our older saloners will remember, at least if they were online back in 1996, is that uh, Timothy Leary, for a while, was saying that he wanted to stream his death experience live over the Internet. I can remember uh, sitting in my home in Florida at the time, following all of the announcements on Leary's website, but also making a firm decision that there was no way I was going to watch anyone die over the net. Ultimately, uh, as it turned out, Timothy decided to uh, keep his death on a more intimate level, and it wasn't webcast. Nonetheless, the months of posts and comments leading up to his death were a watershed for many of us in that, well, it actually did cause us to give more attention to the fact that our deaths should be a time of excitement and happiness rather than a time of fear and dread. Yet, while the film makes an important statement about the true nature of the death experience, the bulk of the film is actually about Leary and Alpert, or Ram Dass, and the history that they created together. While you may have seen a few of the news clips before, like the uh, ones where Leary testified to a Senate committee and was questioned by a very young Senator Teddy Kennedy, there's uh, a lot of historical footage there that I hadn't seen before. For example, there's one scene, uh, <laughs> this isn't really historical I guess, but it's a scene with Leary and Alpert, who uh, as you know is now known as Ram Dass, are looking through a box from Leary's extensive archive. And, well, that scene really struck home with me because I've actually looked through many of those boxes myself. And uh, thanks to the amazing efforts of Dennis Berry, who almost single-handedly preserved Dr. Leary's archive over many, many years until the New York City Library took the collection over. But seeing Leary and Ramdas happily sorting through the detritus of Timothy's life should, uh, well, it should be a thrill for anyone who has or will have visited the Leary archive in the library today. This is a really well-produced and high-quality film, uh, and it's narrated by Robert Redford and features a significant number of famous people, both uh, in old clips and in recent interviews. And for me, there were several loose ends that were taken care of. One of them involves some of the specific details about why Richard Alpert, Ramdas, was fired from Harvard. And in case you didn't know, Timothy Leary was never fired from Harvard. He resigned after Ramdas was fired. Now, I've known the background story about the firing uh, for quite a while now, but like most people who have heard the story, I've never spoken about it because I had only heard it from third parties. Well, this movie tells the complete story, and it's told directly by the people involved. For that reason alone, this is a very historic movie. But don't let me lead you to believe that this is just another documentary about the 60s. To me, uh, well, it's not a documentary at all, but rather a film about how a man came to the end of what can only be called one of the most extraordinary lives in modern American history, and at the end, how he came to accept and even embrace his final days and the end of his life. I'm going to post the four theaters in California where this film will preview on July 10th. My advice to you is that if you are anywhere near one of those theaters, then please don't miss the chance to see this movie on the big screen. Just like the uh, great movie about Sasha Shulgin called Dirty Pictures, well, it may not get a wide release. Hopefully it will, but as someone who has missed out on seeing several interesting movies on the big screen, the way they are created to be seen, I'm here to tell you that you'll probably regret it if you miss the July 10th limited release. So, if you are young and barely know about Ram Dass and Leary back in the 60s, well then this is a truly important film in that it will give you a significantly deeper understanding of what all has taken place to get us where we are today. Just think of it, in half of the states in this country almost, medical marijuana is now available. And it's already even legal as a recreational substance in some places. Yet, did you know that Dr. Timothy Leary was sentenced to 30 years in jail for possession of just two joints? Now, there's still another reason for some of our fellow slaughters to see this film, and that has to do with its focus on the process of dying. In a few weeks, I'm going to be 73 years old. That's uh, actually just three years short of Timothy Leary's age when he died. And if I told you that death was never on my mind, I'd be lying to you. And my guess is that the same is true for most people my age. And if they're anything like me, they'll come away from this movie with a much more peaceful attitude about dying. 
So I'm recommending that if you are young, you should see this film for the knowledge you'll gain about the history of your tribe. But if you're old, you'll get much more than a history lesson. And uh, maybe you can take your grandparents to see it, or if you're a grandparent, maybe you should take your children and grandchildren to see it. Well, (laughs) I guess that I'm just running on now and overselling it, but rest assured I have no financial interest in this movie. My only motivation here is to do whatever I can to encourage you to watch a truly inspiring film, and uh, I'm sure that you won't be disappointed. So for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be careful out there, my friends.